All right, welcome back to another episode of the STC Fit Learning Podcast. Uh, we're here with Luke Tullock, aka Lucid Luke, um, from <laughs> the Instagrams. Um, personally, one of my favorite Instagram stories to tune into most uh. days. Um, maybe not so much for the cats, maybe more a little bit for the, uh, for the research studies, but uh, we're, we're definitely dog people at this end, so... Something about I'm people. a dog person too, mate. I oh, good, good. Those are neighborhood cats. And okay. I get a lot of comments. When I stop posting the cats, I get people messaging me going, what's going on? Where's the cats? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we actually have um, people in our team that I've, I've actually said to make sure they're following you. Um, yeah. And the main feedback I get is like, oh my God, those cats are amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not the, the amazing studies that you review or anything like nah. that. No, nah. it's all about the cats. So other than being uh, the Instagram cat guy, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, man. So, like, what's your background? How have you ended up where you're at? And where are you? What are you doing now? Yeah, well, so I work out of uh, Lift Performance Centre in Sydney um, and have been there since we opened. So I've known Kato, who runs the gym there for a long time. And um, doing less sessions these days. So I spend about 15 hours a week at the gym and the rest of the time I spend actually mentoring other personal trainers in physiology. So my background's in neuroscience. That's what I did at uni. And I've been in the industry for uh, 10 years now. And so I guess always was a bit more academic. Um, you know, I tend to think there are, there tend to be two types of main categories for trainers, the ones that are a bit more, uh, you know, energetic and, and tend to really fire up their clients and get them excited to train. And then the others that are a bit more academic and tend to kind of know a lot behind why they're doing things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I always tended to be more on the academic side. So I really had to try and learn those personal skills, but, uh, Definitely served me well in terms of, you know, just trying to set aside time every day just to study. And, um, and so I feel that after 10 years of doing that, the knowledge has accumulated to the point now where I can kind of have my fingers in, in a few different areas in that. So that's kind of what I'm up to and that's what I do. Yeah. So what did you study throughout that time? Um, like a degree or yeah. something? Or? I, yeah, I started um, in a double degree. So I did biochem and uh, psychology and then went away on exchange and did a little bit of that in the US, which was cool. Oh, nice. And then uh, came back and transferred into neuroscience. So that, that was what I did at, at uni. And then um, obviously just anything training, nutrition related uh, that I could get my hands on is basically what I did in my own time. So yeah. Yeah, yeah cool. Um, so you mentioned the mentoring the other PTs and running, and running that course. Um, so is that based around physiology? Yeah, it is. So the idea is basically that, you know, any physiology and basic chemistry, statistics, biology that you would learn like years one and two at uni, it's basically what I've pulled out, gone, what's relevant for personal training? Uh, What are the foundations you need to know to build up into bigger topics that are more relevant to training and nutrition? And then kind of gone through that and built all of that up into the training nutrition stuff, the exercise physiology stuff. Um, and you know all the all the little topics that you kind of come across. Uh, you know whether it's um, you know what's the deal with insulin and fat loss. What's the deal with uh, gut health and probiotics? What's the deal with you know any of that stuff? I kind of uh, summarize in there as well. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sounds really really good. And how long have you been running that for? So I started about a year ago, and so initially I was taking people on for twelve weeks. That obviously wasn't really enough time to learn too much. <laughs> yeah, six yeah. months, two, two years uh, of was, uni in twelve weeks. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> uh, you know, six months is what I've been running with for a long time. And, and I think I've put about 20 to 25 people through that at the moment. 
Um, but really, I've, I've expanded it now to a year because I think it yeah, just, nice. you know, you just need to do that. It just takes that amount of time. Um, and, you know, it is distilled information. It's not, you know, it's not like every little thing you would learn at uni. It is, you know, what is actually relevant for PTs, yeah. um, which is cool. But uh, it definitely takes time to, to do that. And, and, you know, I'm spending all of my time just writing more and more and more info for it. So every day it's just more stuff coming through, more stuff being put in there. And, you know, you just need the time to go through it, really. Yeah. yeah. So if, if you were, a, um, if a PT is like Cert 4 qualified, new to the industry, that kind of stuff, is that enough of a knowledge base to be able to walk into your course and pick it up over the 12 months? Yeah, I think that's that's really what I'm trying to aim for. Like most of the people I've gotten through have been maybe a few years into the industry and so they've had a bit of a time to have a sniff around and see what, you know, what's going on and what's current in the industry. Um, they've had a bit of time out on the floor. I've had a few people that have got degrees go through as well yeah. um, and they've found it quite helpful just to refresh their knowledge and get yeah, sort of the latest take on all of those topics I spoke about before. But really, I think like the biggest thing for me is that as a trainer, you spend a lot of time practicing your skills in the trenches. So I would never say that a trainer should go away and learn all of this stuff at uni uh, without being an actual coach, without being yeah. good at coaching people. That, yeah. I think that's dumb. And we see that all the time with people who go and do, say, an exercise physiology degree, spend four years at uni, and they come into the gym and they can barely put a program together. You know, yeah. And that's certainly, you need to be, you need to be a good coach first. Yeah. However, I, I feel that most trainers don't have a, a progression, a career progression path, yeah. you know. Um, essentially, if you're a trainer in a gym, you could be doing the exact same thing in 30 years' time. And yeah. so I feel that other jobs have, you know, they have larger responsibilities, they have greater skill sets that come with different aspects of the job, they have on-the-job training, yeah. all that kind of stuff to get you up to speed. And so I think if you're a trainer and you are in the gym and you're working with clients every day, you're putting in many hours each week honing your coaching skills, honing your interpersonal skills. And usually the stuff that falls by the wayside is the foundational knowledge that you never really learn. So that's really where my angle is. It's like, look, you're going to spend a lot of time in the gym honing those other skills. You need to also spend some time honing your theory and your knowledge and being able to put that stuff into application in the gym. Yeah. So um, when you created the, uh, the course itself, was it... Um, looking at like did you have a look at what people learn in cert three and four and then think like this is the gap that needs to be bridged or was it a situation where you were just really passionate about the things that you've learned and I guess maybe you felt that they, your careers benefited from it and you've kind of built it upon that or was it a combination of both or yeah I think it was a combination because um, obviously there's gaps in cert three and four it gives yeah. you like the bare minimum you need to get into the industry uh, but there's also you know I keep my ear pretty close to the ground in the industry and there's a lot of stuff that comes up and there's people talking about you know hormones and gut health and supplements and different dieting strategies and this and that and they speak about high level concepts without knowing the basics. Yeah, like, basics I don't so. think you should be talking about insulin signaling when you don't know what a receptor is. Yeah. You don't, you know, you're talking about inflammation when you don't know what a cytokine is. You don't know what local signaling is compared to, you know, systemic yeah. signaling. You don't know what the words exogenous and endogenous mean. You know, those basic yeah. things yeah. that you should know. It's, you know, it's like talking about a squat if you've never seen a leg before. It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of where I came at it from. You know, definitely there's some gaps in the Cert 3 and 4, but even in the industry, man, you just see this stuff going on. And there's, there's people that are wanting to do good they got a good heart and they want to learn this stuff for sure yeah. there's nobody really providing it's like you, you go straight to like level 10 when it's like 
let's peel it back and go through the, the other stuff first. And then when you get to level 10, you can integrate it and understand where it fits in. Yep. You can understand what's bullshit and what's not. And that's kind of where I'm coming at. Yeah, I yeah. think these these types of courses that are, are so important now, whether it be for movement or um, for physiology in terms of like someone like myself who didn't do the uni thing, just mm. did the Cert 3, 4, was lucky enough to have good people around me and get access to good stuff just because I was hungry to learn. Mm. But over the last couple of years, I've often thought, well, maybe I should go back and do exercise science or exercise fears or bio or something like that. But it's like, for me, already running the business, um, already in a PT area, it's like the time commitment and the financial yeah. commitment is like, it's too much wasted stuff in there um, for, for my mind. So yeah. to, to know that it's like, well, here's all the stuff that's applicable to a personal trainer. That's it's super appealing. Um, and I think yeah, we're only going to see uh, more and more of them. And obviously, you're on a, a ground floor because there's not too many around at the moment. It's awesome. Yeah, oh, totally. Like I think, just as you said, you know, if you're running a business, the time commitment and the financial commitment is massive. And you know, like I studied uh, while I was working as a PT, and it was brutal. It was just so hard. Yeah. yeah. Um, especially if you if you decide to do exercise science or any of those hard sciences. There's requirements in terms of labs, times, and things like that yep. that you can't get around. In yep. other degrees, you can, yep. but not in a biology-based degree. Yeah. Yeah. So, what are you finding is the main, the PTs that have maybe gone all the way through? What mm. are you finding is the outcome? Maybe more so even from a business sense. Like, are they getting better results with their clients, or they just feel more comfortable? They can charge more. Clients are staying longer. What's the main kind of consensus you're getting? from these guys that have done it before? Yeah, well, I think, it, you know, the biggest thing is that it hones their, their critical analytical skills. Yeah, and yeah. so it means that anything that they do, they can justify better to their clients. They feel more confident in prescribing to their clients. They're more efficient with what they're doing because they're not flopping around like, oh, maybe let's try this, let's try this. Yeah. And it's maybe not the best way of doing things. I think the there's a difference between having a lot of knowledge and coaching the person in front of you. And so, yeah. As a coach, your job is to take that knowledge and apply it to the individual, yeah. right? So we can learn all of this theory, but it's up to you to apply that in context for the person in front of you. And so I think it's giving those skills, which, as you say, then, you know, leads to better attention, better results for the client, faster results for the client. Yeah. Um, I think the trainers themselves feel a lot more confident in what they're doing. Yeah. And it, it kind of sets them on a path where they can start becoming their own authority. They can do their own research now. They can... Yeah. Yeah. You know, instead of just repeating what you've learned from somebody else, which is really what a lot of us do, you have to rely on an expert. Yep. You can actually look into things yourself and go, oh, well, yep. I actually have the knowledge to yep. read a research paper now or to, you know, actually assess an article or whatever it is. So yep. I think that's kind of the main benefit is just that critical analysis really helps a lot. Yeah, yeah I think um, one of the major things that, uh, like, I got to carry over from, you know, my time spent at uni and say slowly revisiting the biochemistry stuff one because it's fascinating and two i am i think like a little bit older i'm a bit more appreciative of education yeah. i kind of wish i could go back to uni and do it now if i'm being very honest i probably would have spent more time in class than probably at the pub or anything like that <laughs> for sure um however it does allow you to have that critical mind of like why things happen um piecing things together within reason you know obviously sometimes we can't explain everything but mm. Yeah, just streamlining the process of being a coach in terms of delivering information to your client, having a logical understanding of why we're doing things. Yeah. I tend to find there's a lot of, uh, like especially in personal training, like people just do things just cause, 
um, like because it burns fat, bro. Um, yeah. Yeah. Rather than you know understanding what the outcomes are, yeah. Um, and yeah, it really comes down to being educated um, and appreciating education, and even continued education as a personal trainer. That's um, not beyond like that's not CEC and yeah. um, like PDP related. It's like most of the good stuff is like the stuff that you're rolling out and um, a few other guys out there. Um, mm. That is yeah, um, just next level knowledge. That's um, having an understanding of the whole picture. Yeah, hundred percent. Totally agree with that. Yeah. yeah, it's really cool. So we might uh, use that. And we'll segue. You mentioned about being able to um, do your own research and look at your own papers and all that kind of stuff. So I'm um, definitely one, and I try and be really transparent about it. One of those people that will take in information from the likes of yourself and like um, the le- other leaders that are in the industry that are doing the, um, at least interpretation, if not the research themselves. Um, so how do we go from doing that to being able to, um, so I want to find out something, um, do I go to PubMed, look it up, and then what do I kind of do from there? Yeah, well, you know, it's a bit of a tough one because you have to be familiar with, as I said, some basic mechanisms, um, some, you know, some of the foundational stuff. So. Let's say you do have a, a working knowledge of, you know, biology and chemistry, just on a basic level, you're familiar with some jargon, stuff like that. The way I normally do things is I'll follow a whole bunch of people in the, in the fitness industry, a whole bunch of researchers as well, who are very active on social media, Twitter, Instagram, that kind of thing is pretty popular at the moment. Yeah. And that'll help give you a bunch of relevant research that's currently coming out. Um, you can easily go on PubMed and search stuff for sure and, you know, the thing is, is once you've found one study, there'll be a bunch of references within that study. There'll be, you know, maybe 40, maybe 80. Um, there'll be a lot of references. And so anything that piques your interest in a certain topic, uh, throughout the introduction, what will happen is the authors will sort of have to explain the, just give you a brief overview of the state of the literature in a, in a particular area and what they're looking to add to that, uh, yeah. that field of knowledge. And so within that, they got to justify themselves. And so they might say, oh, you know, previous researchers found X, Y, Z, and then they've got to put the references there. So that gives you like another three references that you can go and look at and learn more about that subject. Yeah, yeah. So all it really takes is one really good paper and you can go down a rabbit hole on whatever topic you're interested in. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's the way I tend to do it is to find, you know, a good review, like a meta-analysis or a systematic review, or even just a really well done study that uh, you know, floats around the traps. You can find, you know, the people like Menno Hanselmans and all those guys will obviously repost all of their the studies that they look at. If you want protein research, Stu Phillips is a really good researcher to follow, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, so there are people that you can find papers from. And then diving into the paper and looking at all the, um, the references is really going to give you more than enough to do. So yeah. that's kind of my jumping off point is to go to the experts and see the papers they are citing but then go to the paper that they are citing and make up my own mind about it. You know, so it's totally cool to take a, a, an expert's opinion on something, but that doesn't trump you actually reading the primary research yourself yeah. and coming up with your own conclusions. Yeah, so you mentioned a couple of different types of studies there. Um, so maybe uh, for the average gym goer, like what's a, what are the types of studies and how do they kind of rank in, time, in terms of like hierarchy? Yeah, for sure. So um, there is definitely a hierarchy in terms of quality of evidence. And so, um, 
these different types of research are used for different reasons. And so probably the first thing we should touch on is, is uh, epidemiology. And so what that is, is when we look at population level um, yeah. associations. And these are usually the, stu the studies that are picked up by the media and yeah. you know, red meat is bad for you, causes cancer or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and so what epidemiology is mainly designed to do is to look at associations on a really large scale. So you might be able to survey 100,000 people, which you would never, ever be able to get close to doing a really controlled trial with. Yeah. Um, and you can look for associations and you can generate hypotheses from that. And so a hypothesis is basically just a research question. So you might see that people who eat a lot of red meat tend to have higher levels of colorectal cancer. So you would say, okay, well, our hypothesis is that consumption of red meat increases your risk of colorectal cancer. Let's now design a study to test that hypothesis. Yeah. So that's basically how epidemiology is supposed to work in most cases. Mm -hmm. um, and so from there, we start to get into the controlled trials. The gold standard is what we call a double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trial. And so what that means is that a randomized controlled trial means that you recruit a bunch of subjects and you randomize them to all the different test groups. So yep. nobody knows who's going to what group and who's being tested with what. The placebo control basically means you test it against a placebo. Mm -hmm. So let's say you're testing a supplement, you might be giving whey protein to one group and you might be giving a placebo to another group that looks, smells and tastes like whey protein, but isn't whey protein. Yep. So you can actually yep. measure differences between the two. Um, and double blind basically means that the subjects don't know which group they're going into, what they're being tested for, and the researchers themselves don't know which subjects are being tested for what. So it just limits the amount of bias that's in there. Yeah. Yeah. So that's our gold standard in terms of testing a hypothesis. Okay. Once you've got enough randomized controlled trials, you start to build a body of evidence. And so no one study can ever give you an overall picture of what's going on. With, with something. It, I kind of liken it to if you had like a really big piece of canvas that was blocking a, a painting. Every study we get, you punch a hole with a pen in the canvas and you yep. get to see like a little bit coming through. Yep. And more holes you punch, the greater the picture starts to become clearer. And so once you have enough uh, body of evidence, you can go in and you can perform meta-analyses and systematic reviews. And those are two different things, but they're really high levels of evidence. So a systematic review basically collects all of the randomized controlled trials that have that meet a certain criteria, and you basically look for uh, associations within that evidence. So it allows you to look at the whole body of evidence and to make a, a conclusion based on, let's say, ten studies or something like that. A meta-analysis uh, gets around some of the problems that we have, especially in biology, when you're trying to study, um, let's say, uh, having somebody on a diet. It's really difficult to recruit people to do that. Um, and that gives you an issue with statistics because statistics works best if you have a large sample size. The larger your sample size is, the more likely that your results are going to be accurate. Yep. And so the problem is that trying to recruit all those subjects is, is a really difficult thing. And so what you can do is if you have a bunch of studies that have been done in a similar way, what you can do is you can pull the results, you can pull the data of all of those studies together and then you can statistically analyze all of that data together. So now you have a really big sample size and you can get a stronger um, yeah. association effect. And so the meta-analysis and the systematic review are basically the gold standard. They're the highest quality evidence that we get. Um, with things like uh, randomized controlled trials a little bit further down, case studies where you just have maybe one person um, that's further down, expert opinions below that. Anecdotal evidence still counts. So if a, guy, a big guy at the gym tells you what he does to get big, 
that's still evidence. It's just not very high quality evidence. Yeah. And so it goes down like that. Yeah. So um, building an impression about, say, a certain topic in particular, are you really trying to court out these peer reviewed, um, like meta analysis studies or is it just a situation of like, you know, you want to know X topic, you kind of look and try and find as much on it as possible. And do you build your own impression from there? Um, like how, how would how would that work? Um, I guess yeah, in your opinion. Like, personally what I do is I like to go, if there is a good meta-analysis or a systematic review, I'll go there first. Because it yeah. gives you the lay of the land. Yeah. Um, and so you can kind of get really familiar with the topic based on that. Yeah. But if you want to be thorough, you do actually have to look at each individual study. And you know, it's to the point where sometimes, like I said before, if you've written a study and you say something in that study, you have to support it with evidence and cite another study. Yep. Often what will happen is if you actually look at the cited study, it doesn't really support what the authors have said in the first study you were looking at. Yeah, and right. so unless you did the due diligence, you would have no idea and you would just take their, their word at yeah. face value. Right. Um, unfortunately, that's unbelievably time consuming. So unless yeah. you are spending yeah. Like, like an hour plus every single day doing that, you're not going to get through it all. Yeah, so. yeah. it's a bit comparable to uh, being on YouTube, starting somewhere and ending up on cat videos playing piano. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> I feel like yeah, this is exactly. going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, hundred um, percent. You know, so unfortunately, in that situation, you know, and that's why, like they say, uh, people always rag on doctors and stuff, and, and say, oh, they're not up to the current evidence and all this stuff. It's like, man, there's some crazy statistic. There's something like. Uh, 20 studies published every hour or something oh, like that shit. in biology across yep. the world. Yep. You know, so every day you're looking at hundreds of studies that are being published and it takes you literally hours to read one study. Yeah. If you're a doctor work, working 10 hours a day, yeah. it's not going to happen. You're running out of resources. So unfortunately, you do have to rely on, um, you know, experts who do have the time to do that, uh, especially in a particular area. And you do have to rely on things like meta-analyses and systematic yeah. reviews and you know, governing bodies and stuff like that. And generally they are pretty accurate, but again, yeah. the ideal situation is forming your own opinion. Yeah, so I was just about to say the same thing. So it sounds like that there seems to be like somewhere in the middle where you take this information, um, it's substantiated a little bit, you build an impression on it, and then you obviously try and implement it yourself and see what mm -hmm. results you get. From there and I kind of feel like sometimes it gets lost in the middle where people don't want to implement things until they know exactly that that's yeah. gonna happen yeah. um, and then you know we've spoken about this briefly in the past um, where you know people want to see evidence substantiated um, for everything and yeah. sometimes it's just not gonna happen people aren't gonna do the study on it yeah. um, or you know some things just don't need it and you can actually just use your own uh, critical thinking to be like well that kind of makes sense I'm gonna try it and if you yeah. get good results um, there's your yeah. proof there. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. As a coach, like your goal is to go right. I know, I know the study, but the study is not prescriptive in any way. A study is never prescriptive. You can't take the training program, or whatever they use in a study, and apply it to a person that, yeah. you're, that you're coaching. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, because the study wasn't done on them, and so what you need to do is to be able to interpret the the guidelines or the theory behind what that study has given you and then apply it to the people in front of you or to maybe change your way of thinking. So maybe something you've been doing, you go, ah, oh, okay, that gives a bit more evidence behind what I'm doing or something that you haven't been doing, you go, well, maybe I should try it a little bit more like this and see what happens with my clients. Yeah. And, you know, I think the, the other thing is a really good point that you brought up. Often it's like, the, the you know, let's say with, with something like, like creatine that's been studied a lot, it's like, the negative effects of giving somebody creatine is basically zero. 
So why wouldn't you do it? And if they get a result, they get a result. If not, it's cheap. There's basically no side effects. Nothing bad's going to happen. So you would use it. You know, in other cases, it's like, what's the risk to reward ratio? Well, we don't know very much about this. Maybe I'll just wait a little bit until I use it. You know, but it's definitely just like you got to use your head and logically implement stuff uh, as you see fit. And that's really the goal of the coach is to, in my opinion, or at least the way I do it, is to be that conduit between, well, this is all the information, but this is how it applies to you as an individual trainee in front of me with, you know, these goals, yeah. this environment, this genetic profile, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and that's the goal, really. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. I think one thing I like about... Um, mainly your stories in particular it's like what you often do is a, a picture of a study here's what they found and then the next slide is this could maybe potentially kind of mean this yeah yeah um it's just the wording around it it's very non-committal but it's it puts it in your mind to maybe consider that next time you are having a discussion around that topic and mm. i like the idea of um, I think, and I know you follow um, the podcast as well, the Joe Rogan with Lane, um, and I can't think of his name right now. The, yeah, yeah, that kind of conversation, I feel like they're the conversations that come from studies. So it's not necessarily the study itself. It's about having the conversations around what they found, what else has been found and what else we know, and then trying to place, okay, so where is that applicable? Who does it apply to? When does it matter? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the thing is that especially science is also people say X, Y, Z proves this, proves that. And the way science works is that you don't ever 100% prove stuff. There's either, you know, there's degrees of evidence. Either there is neutral or equivocal evidence, there's strong evidence, very strong evidence, or the other way. It's all a spectrum, you know. Um, And so, yeah, you have to be like that. And it has to... um, provoke discussion amongst practitioners because at the end of the day if you've got someone who's worked with people for 20 years and has gotten good results the whole way through they're doing something right Mm. whether or not that's in the literature or not is kind of irrelevant Um, but there might be some things that come out of the literature that go okay this is why this guy has done so well and what it's got what's gotten in results maybe we can use that to apply to our own stuff or to teach future coaches or to you know explore something a bit further or whatever it is yeah what are the most common things you'll see in a study um, that kind of maybe put you off a little bit, like make you think, oh, that design's not very good, or um, mm. if someone does want to start maybe self-learning, um, looking at this sort of stuff, what are the main pitfalls you're going to see within, whether it be, is it study design, is it participants? Yeah. Well, there's a few little things that you can kind of uh, look at that'll give you some clues. The first thing is that if you are interested in looking at studies, you have to understand the scientific method. And the scientific method is not a hard set of rules, but it's a bunch of principles that people tend to want to adhere to when you're doing science. And basically it's one of the principles is like what I said before, there's never anything that's proven 100%, there's degrees of evidence. But another big part of it is the reproducibility. And so there's a massive reproducibility crisis in some fields of scientific research whereby Uh, What should happen is you should have a basic layout of a study will be the abstract, which gives you an overview of what the study is. You have an introduction, which describes why they're doing what they're doing, what questions they're asking. So it should state the hypothesis there. If the hypothesis is is not stated, it's rubbish. You you then should have a method section that should allow you, if you had your own lab, 
to basically take their method section and reproduce the study in its entirety. Yep. And unfortunately, you'll find with many, many, many studies, that method section is severely lacking, which instantly to me throws up a bit of a red flag. Because if you don't know how they've done the study, how can you assess their methods? How can you assess the validity of their yep. data? Yep. Um, so the best studies will have quite a comprehensive uh, method section to the point where let's say they're measuring uh, muscle growth and they're using ultrasound to do so. The best studies will tell you the exact ultrasound unit they've used. So yeah. th it's this model from this manufacturer. The way we determined the area was exactly this measurement on this part of the body. The subject was seated in this exact way, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it's very specific and very detailed. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing is reproducibility. Um, the other thing is, uh, you know, I think you have to look at whether the, um, the author has had previous publications in an area and has a particular um, sort of aspect to their, to their academic career. So a really clear example of this is the low carb movement. So uh, there are researchers out there who are decorated, decorated academics um, who have done some really good research in the past but have a bit of an agenda now because their yeah. career started to go along a certain path. Yeah. So my, the person I'm thinking of in particular is Professor Tim Noakes uh, in this example. And so Noakes has done some really good research on some low carb uh, for athletic uh, purposes. Unfortunately, because his career has basically been set upon that path and he's been known as the low carb guy, mm -hmm. his publication bias tends to show now where he will only publish stuff that shows in some way or form, some kind of advantage to a low carbohydrate diet for athletic performance. Yeah, yeah. And the body of evidence suggests that that's absolutely not the case, and it doesn't really make much logical sense. Yeah. Um, you know, so you have to look at publication bias with a lot of these these people as well. Do they have an agenda? Do they sell anything related to it? Uh, do they? What have their previous papers said? Um, all of that kind of stuff. So that, those are like kind of the two main things that I look at when I'm looking at the quality of a study. As I said before, ideally you want to have a, a randomized controlled trial with a placebo um, uh, that is double blinded. Sometimes that's not possible. And you also, like you said before, you want to have a decent amount of participants. So you always have to look at contextually, you know, what is the demographic that's being used? Are they trained or untrained? How young or old are they? What is their, um, their history and how many of them are there. You know, if you have six people participating in a study, you're not going to have statistical power to actually determine very much. Yep. If you have 50 people, you may very well have enough uh, statistical power. Yep. So those are kind of the main things. And from there, you, you know, you're probably looking at something that's going to be reasonably sound in terms of its methodology. Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, back onto the the like having the the brand, I guess, around a certain topic. I think it was Kiefer. Um, with the carb yeah. backloading actually came out and said it doesn't work for sure um which is like that's i would imagine for me like anything that he came out with from there forwards would be like well i'm gonna believe that he's telling the truth because he's just sold himself out of lots of money <laughs> by just yeah, proving sure. himself you even avoid people like um who's the keto dude um Jacob Wilson. Oh, Jack, yeah. Yeah, loves, Jacob Wilson, yeah. Yeah, and the yeah. nine grams of H&B or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> Jack has. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, I kind of steer away from people like that now just based off the agenda so I can totally um, yeah, yeah. get what you're saying with that. Yeah, so, what about um, the carryover from, obviously, it's primarily rodent studies um, mm. into human physiology. 
you often it's one of the ones that like when someone's got an opposing view it's it's like oh well that was on rat so it doesn't count or or whatever yeah so it's a fundamental misunderstanding of how we go about doing science before like like I said before, if you read the introduction of a study, it will build on previous studies that have been done, right? And so you have to have some sort of rationale for doing the study that you're doing and asking the questions that you're asking and the hypothesis. Um, the way it should happen is we shouldn't jump straight into a human trial testing something because we need to understand the mechanisms first. So what it should go from is what we call an in vitro study, which is where you isolate you know, let's say you want to test a, a supplement on a certain hormone receptor, right? You would isolate some tissue in a petri dish or a test tube or whatever you want to call it. And so you're controlling the variables as much as possible. And then you can see the interaction between those two uh, items. And from there you can go, okay, we have an idea of how the mechanisms work. Let's test it in vivo now, which is in a living uh, organism. Mm -hmm. And so we might test it now in an animal. And the reason why we use animals is because firstly, we can control their activity and environment much more closely and so we, we straight away limit a bunch of variables and obviously in biology the amount of variables that there are is just mind-boggling and you'll see physicists and chemists will just like laugh at the quality of, uh, of biology studies because there's just no control as far as they're concerned and so we can control a lot of variables there but also in the case of rats the lifespan is much shorter and so we get to see effects happening much quicker it's a much more practical way rather than doing a um, a study that lasts 20 years, you yeah. can do a study that lasts a month and get a similar result. Mm -hmm. uh, and so once we've kind of gotten the animal model uh, sussed out and we can learn a bit more, we can proceed into human, the human model, which is obviously the least, uh, the least easy to control, has the most variables, it's got the most uh, stuff you've got to work around from an ethical standpoint, um, but it's also going to be the most applicable. You know, so everything plays a role. And so you can't dismiss animal studies, you can't dismiss in vitro studies. Uh, they're not worthless, they're on a lower level of evidence than say a human study might be, but they also might control a lot of variables that you can't control in a human study and they might give you unique insights. So everything plays a role in science and you can't automatically dismiss, as it, again, it, you know, you, you should never be providing one study. It should always be, what does the body of evidence say? What does it say together? Yeah, yeah, yeah cool. So maybe before we move on from the research stuff, you mentioned earlier um, that what you do is kind of find the people who have their finger on the pulse and that are um, checking out the most current stuff. For people listening that might want to be um, getting more into this evidence-based area, who would you suggest that we follow um, and be paying attention to that's reputable and um, doing all the right things at the moment? Yeah, I think a lot of the Bayesian bodybuilding guys are pretty good. So uh, Menno Henselmans and uh, there's a guy that works for him called Stein von Willingen, I think his name is. Um, he's part of the Bayesian bodybuilding crew who they post a lot of studies and they post their own interpretations, many of which I don't usually agree with, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, but I, at least I see the studies. You know, they're doing the legwork and finding the studies. Um, there's a really good... Uh, guy called Yann Lemur, so it's YLM Sports Science. He posts a lot of infographics uh, on different studies. Another guy is Dr. Eddie Joe, posts a lot oh, of yeah, cool infographics. Yeah, He's fantastic. Yeah, His infographics are Yeah, they're unreal, aren't they? Oh, mate, they are so good. Yeah. The amount of time we must spend on that is ridiculous. Yeah, I know. I looked at that too because oh. I tried to create one on Canva and I was like, nah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he's really good. Um, you know, you have all of the standard people uh, in the industry like 
uh, Lyle McDonald, um, you know, Alan Aragon, his recent indiscretions notwithstanding, obviously a lot of his work is still really relevant. Yeah. Um, you know, all of those guys are really, really solid in terms of getting uh, exposed to some evidence that you can then go and look up yourself. Yeah. There's some really good Facebook groups, like Lyle's Facebook group, they'll post studies constantly in. Um, and there's a few other Facebook groups, uh, if I can find them, I'll tell you what they are, uh, that have, they just post studies in there, that's their whole point. Um, yeah, cool. I can't find them right now. Uh, International Society of Sports Nutrition is pretty good too, and they have position stands on various topics yeah. that you can then go through and look at all the references and, and look at that. So those would be the main ones I would be following. Follow some research reviews as well. So I subscribe to every research review that's out there. Um, yeah. And then I go through and look at all the research myself after I've read their take on it. So um, Chris Beardsley does a phenomenal one for sports and con is strength and conditioning review, just next level. Um, Mass is next level. So that's uh, Greg Knuckles, yeah. Eric Helms, Mike Zordos, they do that one. Um, Alan Aragon's one is next level. Whether you want to give him money or not after you investigate his story is your choice. Um, so those are all really, really phenomenal. Uh, James Krieger does a really good one as well. So yeah. I would look at all of those and that gives you sort of the doorway into finding all of this research yourself. Yeah. Yeah. But it also, it gives you some insight into how people look at stuff, you know, um, and how they review stuff. And actually one of the things that I do with my mentoring is I do a research subscription where it, it's, not a, it's not a review of studies, but I actually go through studies live and so you can watch the process, you know, so all of those guys will give you like a monthly thing of maybe, you know, five to 10 studies where you can, they kind of give you their take on a study. But um, the way I wanted to do things was to be like, well, if you want to look at a study, let's go through it live and see what we're actually looking for, what we're looking at. Let's get familiar with the study itself. Mm -hmm. And so I try and do that as well, but it does give you a bit of an insight into how people are starting to think about approaching research. Yeah, definitely enough there to, uh send us down Plenty. a very deep <laughs> yeah. wormhole spend a lot of time on that, <laughs> I yeah i feel like there's a lot of late nights with you uh buried deep into studies yeah um, a little bit <laughs> um so jace you wanted to dig into nutrition as well oh well yeah i always like to talk about other people's um you know stances and maybe you know just methods or just views on nutrition like you seem very knowledged and having a you know physiology and biochem background i was just uh, intrigued to see, like, because there's this big push again, like, towards energy balance as being like the only um, thing to consider. And yeah, I just wanted to know, like, one, you know, are we just working with energy balance in your opinion? And two, like, what are some other layers to nutrition that people maybe like don't think of that could be relevant outside of energy balance? I guess is probably the best place to go. Yeah, I mean, when it comes down to. Uh fat loss and, and muscle gain and all that sort of thing, you know, there, there is a hierarchy again. And I think uh, the, the biggest issue is consistency and adherence. Yeah. That underscores everything. Um, and so if you can't come up with some kind of plan that's going to provide you that, then it's useless. Uh, but that being said, which I think is, is kind of obvious, but we should always keep in mind, um, energy balance is obviously really, really important. Um, now, there's a lot of stuff that's going to go into that you know so it, it's simple to say oh well it all comes down to energy balance but the reality is we've known that for decades and we still have an obesity crisis on our hand and we still have people who struggle to lose weight so the the key is really again like i keep saying is looking at the individual in front of you and working out what is going to get them the result 
that they need. For some people, that's going to be meticulously tracking everything that they do, and that might suit their personality. They might have a bit of a robotic personality and like to do that stuff. They might enjoy numbers and, and that type of thing. And for many people, it's like gamifying their food. You know, they're trying to hit certain targets and, and they feel good when they do that. For other people, that is just completely overwhelming and it's not going to work for them. And so different strategies are required there. So I go all the way with my clients from literally getting them to write down what they're eating in a, I suppose, a sort of little food diary or take pictures of it. And I don't even give them a prescription sometimes of what to eat. It's like, just take a picture of it. Yeah. And all of a sudden, because they've become mindful of what they're putting in their mouth, they go, yeah. oh, maybe I shouldn't be eating this. Yeah. Um, and so it goes all the way from that to the precision nutrition method of using portion sizes and sticking to you know Very whole good. foods. Yeah. And all the way up to actually, and if it fits your macros approach, where you're trying to hit macro targets, yeah. you know. So, I suppose the the overall approach is still to try and control energy balance, but the method through which you do that could be almost endless. Whether that's a whole foods approach, intermittent fasting, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, you know. Within that, I think for your health, probably the most powerful thing you can do if you are an overweight person is to achieve a calorie deficit. Yeah. Um, you know, we hear a lot of coaches talking about things like insulin resistance and inflammation and gut health and all of this. And the reality is that being overweight and in an energy surplus is going to be bad for all of that stuff, no matter what. So the first thing you should be doing is trying to get into an energy deficit before you worry about anything else. Yeah. Yeah. But if you wanted to take it a step further, we can start talking about things like food quality, you know, meal timing, um, supplements and that type of stuff. One of the biggest mistakes I see people make is that they don't really pay much attention to the quality of the the or the type of carbohydrate, the type of protein, the type of fat that they're having. So it's all well and good to get the right numbers, but you know, if all you're eating is saturated fat, the reality is you're going to have some issues. Um, and so, getting more monounsaturated fats and polyunsaturated fats in your diet can make a really big difference. And that's one of the strategies I used with. You know, I had a powerlifter who is a really tall guy. But he basically needed to get from 138 to 145 kilos. And so we're eating in a massive surplus there. Mm. His health is going to take a bit of a dive. That's just the reality of it. He's a mm. massive guy that needs to eat a lot of energy every day. Yeah. But how can we mitigate some of the effects on his health when he yeah. was just feeling shit? Okay, well, let's put in some more nuts. Let's put in some, replace some of the saturated fats with unsaturated fats like olive oil and things like that. And all of a sudden he's feeling better. So he performs a little bit better. He sticks to his diet a bit better and we get a better result at the end of the day. Yeah. And the same can be said for things like fiber and uh, you know a wide variety of nutrients from different fruits and vegetables, all that kind of stuff. So you know, yeah. with nutrition, the, the basic idea is really simple and really straightforward. But you can get into, like you said, there's layers to it. Mm. You can yeah. always get deeper into it and always yeah. get deeper into yeah. it. Something yeah. really cool I heard yesterday um, from a couple of chiros was that treat the individual uh, so in, not the in, symptom. Yeah, not the symptom. So in our case, mm. I treat the client, not the symptom. Symptom typically being um, poor body composition. So instead of just walking up to poor body composition and going, okay, we need to do this, walking up to a person and saying, okay, how do we get the best out of you as, a, as an individual? 100%. I, you know, the one of the best guys I've come across for this is uh, Tommy Hewitt, who co-hosts the Under the Bar podcast. He has a phenomenal um, client assessment, initial consultation type method, but it's simple stuff that you think, well, that makes a lot of sense, but it's things like he asks them, how many times a day do you normally eat? And if they say three, his first meal plan he gives them three. is three meals a day. He doesn't give them four or five meals a day because yeah. 
you know, again, you're talking to an individual. It doesn't matter what you think is optimal. Mm. They're not going to do it, you know, unless you give it presented in a way that's going to remove, you know, barriers uh, yeah. for them. So you're 100% right, you know, and that's really what nutrition is all about. Like, to be honest, I maintain a, a body composition that I'm extremely happy with. Um, that's better than 99% of people walking around out there. And I don't really go beyond uh, energy balance, enough protein, and, you know, making sure that most of my foods are of pretty good quality. Yeah. Like, I don't bother about nutrient timing or supplements, and I can still achieve something that I'm sort of happy to stick with for the rest of my life. So if you can just consistently get those basic things right for somebody, you can go really far with it. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the challenge, really. Are we, are we talking um, wide variety of food groups as well, Luke? Like, um, you know, are we, are we looking at uh, maybe the nutritional, the nutrition pyramid, um, like just from a food uh, variety standpoint, not necessarily the, the ratios that they are prescribing, like things like dairy and uh, meats and, and stuff like that? Yeah, I'm always, I'm, I'm all for as much variety as you can get. Yep. You know, I think that's really important. Um, I'm, sometimes things do need to be restricted but unnecessarily restricting things is a really bad way to go for long-term adherence. And it's also a bad way to go for health because the more variety of foods you avail yourself to, you know, the more micronutrients you're potentially availing yourself to as well. Yeah. Um, and people like to rag on things like whole grains and dairy, but the reality is that if you look at the average uh, from the literature on, on a whole uh, perspective, whole grains and dairy actually have a really health promoting effects. They are anti-inflammatory. Yep. Now, for the individual, at an individual level, they might not be. So you have to do, yeah. you have to work that out. But I think the first port of call is always to go, look, nothing's excluded. It's a wide variety of nutrients, but you may have some foods that don't sit well with your digestion. You may have some foods that are quote unquote trigger foods, like you just can't stop eating chocolate yeah. once you have hands on it. So don't have it in the house, um, you know, things like that. And then it comes down to an individual prescription. But generally speaking, yeah, like wide varieties, are, I'm a big fan of that. So do you have any specific protocols around that or around like uh, oily fish twice a week or anything like that? Or again, is it, it's purely based on the individual? It's pretty individual. If a person is not eating oily fish uh, or anything like that, like if they really can't stand fish, for example, then I'll get them to supplement in that case, for example, you know, with some omega-3s. But as a general rule, I tend to get them to stick to what they enjoy eating and then I'll make sure that they are consistent with whatever plan I give them for at least two weeks, and then I'll have a look at it and make changes from there. Yeah. Um, and, and I just work that way. I find yeah. it works pretty well in the long term for most people. Yeah, nice. Yeah, it's good. Um, so what about, just to, to maybe start wrapping it up, what about yourself training-wise? You said you're in a body composition range that you're happy with, and I'd be pretty happy if I could see all the heads of my quads as well. Um, for those who haven't seen Luke yet, get on his Instagram, he's reasonably <laughs> shredded. Um, so what are, you, what, what are you doing with your training? You mentioned you're coaching some powerlifters and mm. like by the sounds of it, even some gen pop people. What are you yeah, doing? Yeah, actually a lot of my business is gen pop. Um, yeah. yeah, like personally, um, you know, I just wanna sort of look good um, and be reasonably strong. I don't have any um, competitive desires uh, as it stands and actually man I actually fell out of love of training um, maybe six months ago I just got really over it and I just couldn't be bothered anymore mm -hmm. but I knew I had to keep doing it because it's good for me so yeah. <laughs> uh, 
So, you know, I guess I found myself in the headspace that a lot of general population clients are in. But, um, you know, I think understanding the principles really helped me say, look, this is the amount of training volume I need to do. This is the type of training I need to do to maintain my health and my, my size and my yeah. strength. So I can basically do that minimally and then spend a bit more time just walking outside and doing some stretching and mobility and just changing things up a little bit. So it's pretty powerful to be able to interpret that feeling for your clients to know. Yeah. Um, I've experienced too. I know Jace has as well. Yeah. Those times where you just like it's, it is as much as I hate the word. It is a grind sometimes. Mm. Um, to and yeah, I think it's important too for je- for the general population to understand that. PTs, yeah, as much as we train. love it, but yeah, sometimes, sometimes it's like, fuck, yeah, I wouldn't mind staying in bed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it's good to, be, to stay transparent like that. Like, I'll, I'll communicate sometimes to my clients that I'm not motivated to train, um, and then they're like, well, what do you do um, when you're not motivated? I'm like, well, I can still go and train. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> so and I think that's probably where the difference lies for some people is you yeah. just, they're like, wait, you go in even when you don't want to. I'm like, yeah. a lot of times you walk in that door and load that bar up, and you're like, I can't wait till the end of the session. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not for sure, but you know, I think it, it helps because the reality is like a lot of people get into the fitness industry because they fucking love training. And so yeah. they can't relate to someone who's overweight who doesn't love training. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who's coming in to see them. And so it's good yeah. to communicate that stuff. For but sure. like, yeah. sorry, like you said, you've, you've identified, okay, what is the minimal amount that I need to do? And like you said, it was based on the understanding of the benefits. So whereas I, f- I feel like a lot of PTs are like, oh, you, you need to train because healthy. Yeah. Whereas actually coming from and being like, well, this is the, the benefits from a biochemical um, level. This is what it's actually doing to your body. This is what it's going to do long term. Being able to provide that level of education to your client is then when they do have those weeks where they're like just not feeling it, it's a little bit more, you're more inclined to do that. Oh, I just go anyway. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent agree with that. So yeah, so my training is not uh, nothing fancy at the moment. Um, you know, it's probably like four resistance training a week of about forty minutes, and I do one or two cardio, and I just walk a shit ton. Um, yeah. and that's pretty much it. So it's it's nothing crazy, but you know, in the past I have done, you know, five six days a week of two hours resistance training, that kind of stuff, and you know, it's just like the amount of work sometimes you have to do to eke out. An extra five percent is just to me not worth it when I could be doing something else that I enjoy a little bit more at the moment. Yeah. yeah. So when you said in terms of minimum volume and stuff, um, you're obviously tracking volume some way, shape, or form. Is that yeah, sets sure. per week per body part or per movement. How do you approach that? Yeah, I mate, I tend to keep it simple. I go hard sets per week and uh, yes. per body part per week. And yep. the way I determine a hard set is just proximity to failure. So we know in the literature as it stands that um, you can get pretty similar results in terms of muscle growth uh, with low loads and uh, heavy loads, provided you're within range of failure. So within sort of maybe five reps of failure, I tend to go a bit closer to failure than that usually speak, uh, generally speaking. Um, So knowing that it's just a case of going, right, how many hard sets per week can I do on the body part? And that'll at least maintain my size. and that's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah it's awesome. And are you basing that off the Mike Hussertel, like landmarks or from somewhere somewhere else? Uh, not too much. I don't find his landmarks work across everybody, to mm-hmm. be honest. Um, I like the concept, but I don't like providing hard numbers. I, don't, I just don't think it's, uh, I 
find it a bit odd to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Um, but generally I do know what works for me. And like, to give you an example, like my quads, they're a strong body part of mine for sure. You know, um, so I could do a minimal amount of training on that and they would still look like pretty big. Yeah. Um, I would still have a decent amount of separation in them. There are other body parts that I have to work a lot harder on, like say my shoulders mm-hmm. to keep them where they are. Um, and so it's just personal experience in that regard. Um, but I think probably the amount of volume that you need on a body part to uh, maintain size is a lot lower than what people think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so- The intensity is right. Yeah. Exactly right. And assuming that intensity is there. So, you know, uh, uh, it's difficult mentally to, to like walk out of the gym after 20 minutes and be like, that was actually enough sometimes. But, yeah. you know, um, having gone through that and experienced like, oh, okay, I actually have been able to maintain my size for about six months doing something like that. It, it works just fine. And if you ask Rawdon as well, he's experienced that too. Yeah. Um, you know, which is, which is interesting because his training sessions for his competitors are brutal. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. they're super high volume. Yeah, I've actually been on the end of a couple of those in there. Not <laughs> training with Nasty. one of his clients in the past. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. a savage no. way to spend two hours, that's for sure. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> um, all right, cool. I, I don't have any more no, questions. That was a really good discussion. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 awesome. So uh, what's the best way for um, our listeners to find you? Um, mm. I know I do it on Instagram, but yeah, what's the, yeah, the handle? Instagram's good. Um, if you want to email me and have a chat, I'm more than happy to. So that's Luke at lucidhealthcoaching.com. Yep. Um, on Instagram, I am Luke Lucid Health. And in my bio, I have links to my research subscription, to my physiology mentoring, uh, all that type of stuff. And yep. obviously, throw me a follow if you want to learn a little bit more about the science and, and that sort of thing. Happy for people to message me there. I really like discussing this stuff. So yeah, more than happy to do that. But everything's pretty much on my Instagram. So go through that. It's probably easiest. Yeah, perfect. Um, or one one last question I did think of: Did you ever hear back from uh, admin in the Ashy Bynes? Uh, <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't hear back. <laughs> I didn't. No. no, they gave us so they um, they gave us a bit of a generic response, like, "Oh, uh, thanks for your your uh, message. We'll get back to you if you want to talk to the nutritionist in the meantime. Like, here's an email or whatever." It was just a joke, man. Yeah, like just ridiculous. So I think there were a few few people who try to have a go at her and just yeah. got the automated response back. And yeah. to be perfectly honest, I think that whole saga was just like her social media team just posted up something really stupid and she yeah. probably has no idea about it really. Yeah, sometimes you can see that. Like yeah. we've seen that with BPACs, yeah. Instagram yeah. and stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I don't know how much they know about what's going on there. Yeah. Nah, yeah, yeah, when it gets to a certain size, I'm sure it's just a case of like having yeah. a team of people. Managing it. it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. far, yeah. our man Tam hasn't... Uh, Hasn't thrown us under the bus nah, yet. Um, <laughs> a few times on my. <laughs> just keep keep bringing him in and doing the filming for guys like Luke and yep. he'll stay on top and we'll be yeah. sweet. Yeah. Awesome, sweet. man. Well, we'll let you yeah. go. Yeah. Um, everyone that's out there, make sure you do get over and show Luke some support for coming on the podcast. Yeah, and, definitely. Um, dropping some heaps of information that's actually tangible that we can go and use. So. Mm. Yeah. Really. Thanks appreciate very much, guys. Time. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for your time. Absolutely. Man. Really appreciate it, guys. Good to see some some other people doing some good in the industry really appreciate what you're doing thank you yeah, likewise, we try. Man. yeah. Awesome. awesome we'll be in touch thanks hit it awesome thanks a lot guys